Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Emma Ajiman, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Nicholas Wall, Manager of Funds including Old Mutual Global Strategic Bond. Bonds have traditionally been the first area that investors have turned to when trying to diversify equity portfolios and have also been favoured by income seekers. However, years of loose monetary policy mean that the prices of these assets are more expensive, so they do not necessarily offer very high yields and may not offer much more reward for taking on higher risks than you would get from cash. Nick, you run free bond funds. Can you explain in a bit more detail exactly what effect central bank policy has had on bonds? Yeah, I mean, central bank policy has had a bigger and bigger impact on bonds in recent years as we've kind of hit the lower bound on interest rates and and QE's become more of a factor. I mean, historically, um, in terms of what influenced bonds and what um, influenced interest rates, it was much more the kind of supply and demand for for capital in the markets. You'd have people who are saving and people borrowing, you'd find the equilibrium rate. And you know, central banks would fine-tune the economy and they might lower interest rates if they thought they wanted to stimulate demands or raise interest rates if they, you know, they thought demand was too strong and they thought it might be inflationary. In recent years, it's gone more from fine-tuning to, to being a bit more dramatic. You know, when we had the crisis um, in 2008, bonds quite rapidly hit the zero bound and they didn't want to take um, interest rates below that. So central banks engaged in QE and had a much greater effect on interest rates further out the curve, so in longer maturity bonds. And uh, it was a much bigger influence than, than, it, um, than it was historically. You mentioned longer maturity bonds, so I have to ask, has this affected all bonds? Because it's not like they are one homogenous thing, there's all sorts of bonds... Again, historically, the longer data bonds would much more uh, be determined by the supply and demand in the market and the central bank would traditionally influence the, the front end of the curve. But what you've had with QE is you've had central bank buying vast quantity of, of government debt and uh, sometimes corporate debt and sometimes mortgage-backed securities um, all across the curve in, in short, uh, short-dated bonds and any long-dated bonds. And this has had an impression that has flattened the curve and um, has seen interest rates in the longer end of the curve um, kind of come down and I had a big had a big influence there. Okay now on the subject of monetary policy it's expected um, even though there wasn't one yesterday that there might be interest rate rises in the UK this year and, and probably more likely in the US so what will be the effects on bonds if these do happen? Well a lot of it is already priced in so if the message from the central banks has been well communicated and they're very clear about you know, what they're looking for in the data and what they're looking for in inflation, then when a central bank does hike or cut interest rates, then that should be priced in most of the time. And central banks try not to shock the market too much and try and uh, give clear signposts. Now, I think you saw yesterday after the um, the Bank of England announced that it wasn't moving on interest rates and it was quite happy with um, kind of where interest rates were at the moment. You saw a rally in gilts and, and gilt, you know, gilt bonds increase in price and went down in yield. Um and in the uh, US, actually, we think that you know a lot of the expected um, hikes from the Federal Reserve this year are already priced into the curve, and, and the market's fully expecting them. So when the strategy from the central banks is marked very clearly, it shouldn't influence bonds too much on the actual day of, of any hiking announcement. That said, bonds of shorter durations are supposed to be less affected by rate rises. Why is this? And are you investing in bonds of shorter durations? 
Uh, a bond, in essence, is just a series of cash flows that an investor will receive over time. Basically um, a loan, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so you, they'll, yeah. they'll receive coupons. Mm. Which are like uh, interest. For, exactly, so, yeah. and then they'll receive their principal back at the end. And to work out the value of a bond, you have to discount the value of those cash flows back into today's money. And you discount that using the, the prevailing interest rate at the time that's, that's, a, that's appropriate. So if you've got a shorter duration bonds, there are fewer cash flows. You might have a coupon and your principal payback. And so therefore, you know, in one year, whether the interest rate is 2% or 3%, it's not going to make a huge difference to, to the uh, price of the bonds and what it's worth to you today. Whereas if you have a long dated bonds, say a 50 year bond or a 100 year bond that you even get these days, that's a huge amount of cash flows you'll receive. You know, you receive many coupons and you receive the principal back and you have to discount all those cash flows back into today's money. And so therefore, like when you have a longer duration bond, longer duration bond with plenty of cash flows, you know, the even a small change in the interest rate and the rate you're discounting those cash flows back can make a huge difference to uh, to your income. So, a longer duration bond is much more sensitive to interest rate rises. And so, as a bond investor, you know, you take a view on where interest rates are going and at what rate you should be discounting those cash flows back. If you thought as a bond investor that interest rates were going to fall, you'd want to buy long duration bonds and increase the duration in your portfolio. But recently, people have taken a different view, and they think interest we're in a rising interest rate environment because you know we're past the the kind of crisis years, and we're starting to see some signs of inflation coming back. So bond portfolio managers wanted to decrease the amount of duration in their portfolio, so they're less sensitive to interest rate rises. Um, and that is something that we that we did do. Um, it's you know since we've been managing the uh, global strategic bond funds, we have been running short duration positions on the back of this, and we've caught a lot of that sell off. Um, but we think now probably the situation is a bit more nuanced. And um, what's the um, average duration of uh, holdings in old mutual global strategic bonds? So global strategic bonds, um, you know, it's, it's there for investors to have exposure to to fixed income. And um, we benchmark it you know, against the bond index. So there will always be some duration in that portfolio and it will always be exposed to, to interest rate risk. But we, you know, we run less duration than, than our, our benchmark. Uh, so there's about six years of duration in there. Because of our view on on bonds, and we thought that interest rates were going to rise when we joined Old Mutual, we also launched a absolute return bond fund as well, um, and then that, and that that has the ability to go long or short duration in an absolute sense. And in that fund, we're we're running a duration position which is absolute short of about half a year. Do bonds face any other risks? Yeah, there are plenty of risks invested in bonds, and you can, as you go further, kind of up the risk spectrum in terms of the type of bonds you buy, you get exposed to more risks. You know, for a government bond, you typically the yield will be determined by kind of central bank expectations, where where people expect central banks to have to have rates now and in the future over the life of the bonds, and you'll also have some inflation premium. And so, you know, inflation is very bad for bonds. Bonds pay you typically a fixed rate of interest. As inflation rises, the value of those cash flows will, will be lower because if inflation is at ten percent and you're receiving you know, two two pounds on income a year, then then that's going to devalue. So you're exposed to inflation risk with bonds. Um, but, you know, the best environment for bonds is a low inflation or deflationary environment. Also, if you decide you want to take on a little bit more credit risk, then you will have credit premium in there as well. Um, so obviously, if you lend money to the government, um, that's typically determined to be the risk-free rate. But if you lend money to a corporate who has a lower credit rating, then you should be compensated for that. So you're exposed to those credit, credit risk premium. If we went into a recession, that credit risk premium rises and the value of a bond will drop. 
and plenty of other risks as well, such as you know liquidity risk, or if you decide to invest in foreign bonds, then if you don't hedge it, you'll be exposed to, to FX risk. So there are plenty of risks for an investor to, to consider. And if the risk in uh, those bonds falls, you'll make money. And if it rises, then uh, those values will, will, those bonds will drop in value relative to, to a safe kind of government bond. Yeah, fair to say that a lot of what you outlined just now aren't like things specific to the moment. Those are just general ongoing risks. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, you, mm. I mean, when I'm invested in bonds for for global strategic bond or for the strategic capital return fund, I mean, we take a view on all these risks. Um, you know, we don't we don't avoid risks. We we judge whether you know in risk adjusted terms whether it's a good investment. So if you look recently, when you've you know we've been in a stronger dollar environment and U.S. yields have been rising, and you know a lot of the market was long emerging market debt and. Emerging market debt historically has struggled in a stronger dollar environment because they borrow a lot in dollars, so their, their liabilities increase. Um, and also when US interest rates rise because they tend to be the benchmark for global bonds. So you've seen a big um, increase in the in the risk premium that um, is demanded from investors when inv- investing in emerging market debt. Now, we might take the view that actually that's gone too far and actually you're fairly rewarded for investing there and take a view in that, that risk premium for emerging market debt should fall. Um, and, and invest in emerging market bonds. Do you think that investors have overreacted to, let's say, some of the current bond risks that we were discussing before? Uh, I don't think they have. I mean, we've, we've shared the view um, with a lot of the market um, and a lot of other funds out there that, you know, in in kind of mid-2016, when this kind of secular stagnation theory, i.e. we're in a low-growth, low-inflation world because we're highly indebted and because of demographics was, you know, it's a prevalent thing driving the market. Uh, you know, the, the real yields, the, the yields adjusted for inflation in many government bonds were, were far too low in our opinion. And they did look overvalued and, you know, we subsequently took short positions in there. Um, and I think, you know, because historically bonds and yields have been a lot higher, um, that the sentiment is justified. But I would also caution that, um, you know, bonds have sold off quite a long way now. We've got US Treasury yields in the 10-year part of the curve at 3%, and they really struggled to go beyond that. So I don't think we're going to get, we won't get back to, in my view, um, bond yields that prevailed pre-crisis. I think, you know, the world has a lot more debt. There's still global imbalances out there where there's too many savers and, and, too, um, and a lot of borrowers. And as interest rates rise and people have borrowed, their debt service costs will go up more quickly because there's greater debt than they would have previously. So I don't think um, yields will get back to pre-crisis levels. And you know, in some some markets, um, yields are starting to look enticing to, to kind of close that short position and, and go and go long in, in some markets. Of any particular market? Well, I think... Um, think uh, We've had the sell-off in emerging market debt, which I think has gone too far. Um, I think there are some countries which have strong fund- fundamentals but have been caught up in, um, you know, people were too long and, and positioning got caught out um, and the liquidity wasn't there because too many people tried to sell at the same time. I think that's, you know, we've now created value and um, I think investors who, who step into some of the, the some of the emerging markets that have the strong fundamentals will be rewarded and should do whatever time. Um, I also think, you know, in the in a... As a near-term trade, um, maybe not long-term, but 
uh, US Treasury yields at three percent. They've really struggled to get beyond there. Every time they've they've got to around three percent, you've seen consistent buying from uh, from many investors out in Asia who see that as an as an attractive level. Um, you've also got a you know, um, investors also have a big short position in that market, which you know, means that at some it means that a lot of people are already in the trade. And the danger is if you do get some weaker data, people might rush to close that short position and can see um, Treasuries rally from there. So I think. It's not uh, to us. It's not a clear-cut trade. It was in late 2016. It will be a bit more two away from here, I think. Now, what are you doing to mitigate the various risk bonds faced at the moment? I mean, you mentioned you had an IT duration, but I wondered if you're doing anything else. So, yeah, I mean, there are bonds that we can invest in that would typically be, I mean, less exposed to to movements in interest rates. I mean, one is like you said, we can we can go short duration and. We can go short versus the benchmark, or in the absolute return fund, we can go outright short. So, so we can uh, mitigate the risk there by by using that strategy. We, I mean, we've also had a view that inflation would rise relative to market expectations. So, we can invest in inflation-linked bonds. Um, also, um, we've been investing in the bonds of um, financials. Now, typically, in a rising rate environment, and when the yield curve steepens at the front end, this is a good environment for banks because they typically take in deposits. And you know will pay the, the central bank base rate or, or slightly above, and they can lend further out the curve at a longer maturity. So the bigger that spread is between where they lend and where they um, borrow money from depositors, the more profitable they are. So we think that's a that's a good hedge there. And it, and also, like I said, we, we we like investing in emerging markets, which you know we think they've already adjusted to this higher interest rate environment and and do offer some value value here. Okay. Now, you use derivatives um, as well in the funds you run. I mean, what do you use them for and in what situation? Yeah, I don't think people should look at derivatives necessarily and think, oh my God, they're taking huge amounts of leverage. They're a way sometimes of expressing a view which might offer greater liquidity and and is cheaper to do rather than investing um, in, in, say, cash bonds. So we use them for relative value trades a lot of the time. So we might be long a future in US treasuries and, and short future in, in bunds. And so it's just a cheap way for it to express that. Also, um, derivatives have, you know, since we've moved to central clearing in a lot of OTC markets, um, the kind of counterparty risk has, has been lowered a lot. Um, so, you know, we we don't see it as meaningfully adding to the risk um, of the funds. And we generally use derivatives just as, as a cheaper way to express a view. Now, do derivatives, I mean, you, you did, um, you mentioned risk, they're obviously helpful, but they do incur risks. So what sort of risks do you incur when, when you're using derivatives? The, the most obvious risk would be if you were doing a derivative which is kind of over the counter and wasn't um, transacted through a, a central clearer. Um, this still happens sometimes in, um, you know, in, in interest rate swaps or um, instruments like that. Now, the, the risk you are exposed to there is... You know, for example, like in the global financial crisis, you might have had the long interest rate exposure through a swap, but you're also taking counterparty risks there. And you saw the swap spreads, which is the spread between interest rate swaps and, and government bonds widen significantly. So you might have had the right view, but because of your counterparty risk, you might have been facing the Lehman Brothers, for example. You're unsure whether they're going to pay out on, on the money you made from your interest rate swap. So that would be the biggest risk. And that's driven the move to, to kind of central clearing. You can also, I suppose, because it is because you can use derivatives sometimes, and um, and they offer a lot more liquidity. 
then if there is a negative event in a future you hold, then perhaps that will um, have you know, a more volatile move than, say, other bonds that surround it. So a good example, um, this hasn't happened for a while because volatility has gone down a lot, but would be during the European crisis with Italy. Now, Italy has a, a very liquid um, interest rate future that's traded through Eurex, um, which offers you exposure to um, 10-year duration in Italy. Now, if there was a negative event in Italy, like there has been recently, although the volatility around it hasn't been too bad, then the first, um, the most kind of active investors in the market, typically kind of fast money and hedge funds community, will typically sell that interest rate future. And so you might see the 10-year underperform. So you, you do have, in times of stress, perhaps high volatility risks if you invest in the futures, but generally... Um, they're, they're a lot safer than they were pre-crisis. Okay. Now, um, talking of eliminating risks, are there any areas of the bond market that you're totally avoiding? Yeah. So we actually don't like uh, gilts at all at the moment. Um, UK government bonds. UK, sorry, yeah. UK government bonds. Um, now, that's not because we think there's the UK is a huge credit risk at all. It's not. I mean, it's, uh, it's a sovereign country. It prints its own currency. Um, and, you know, there's... There's very very small chance to default is a risk free bond, but we just think when we look at things in terms of price and we look at the the real yield you get offered on UK government bonds, which is negative. Um, so you know in inflation adjusted terms, you you don't really make any money and it's it's a safe haven. And there have been a lot of kind of price insensitive buying that's gone in gilts because perhaps people use it as a hedge against um, against Brexit and, and risk off. Or perhaps it's pension funds that just want to de-risk their their pensions, regardless of the cost of guilt. So it's not a market that kind of we think that offers value to, to a kind of more active bond investor. Um, we also like to avoid um, U.S. investment grade credit. Um, we think the spreads there are quite tight. You don't really get rewarded for the credit risk you're taking on. And also, what you've seen in this kind of post-QE world, particularly from Japanese investors, where the Bank of Japan has been pretty much has is the only player almost left in the JGB market, the Japanese government bond market. And so you've seen a huge kind of um, capital exported from Japan into the US market. And the Japanese investors wanted a little pickup in yield over and above US treasuries. So they've been huge investors in US investment grade credit. Now, our view is that those QE operations in Japan are slowly coming to an end. um, And we think a lot of that money that's gone into the US, particularly because Japanese investors went hedging for that, gets penalized for investing in the US now. And um, we think that money will come back to Japan and it will leave the USIG market. So technically speaking, um, we don't we don't we think that market will weaken. Okay. Now many financial advisors at the moment say that if you're going to invest in bonds, the best thing to do is get a strategic bond fund. Now you run a strategic bond fund, but you also run two other types of bond funds. So what's your view on this? Are strategic bond funds best? Yeah, I mean, we run a strategic bond fund for people. The, the global strategic bond fund is for people that want some some interest rate exposure and they want um, you know to fulfil a fixed income allocation in their overall portfolio. Um, and then we run that asset return fund, which was people who you know, we've you know, we try and create alpha over and above our benchmark. And if people don't want the interest rate exposure, they they go into our asset return fund. Now we think we think strategic bond funds whether they're absolute return or whether they, they have duration are the best option. Um, we, you know, we invest um, across the entire fixed income and currency universe, whether it's developed markets, emerging markets, in credit, and we also take FX risk, which means 
you know, we think there are always opportunities on the long and the short side to, to try and create alpha. Um, and, you know, we can be, you know, we're, we're unconstrained and we can, we can go into different parts of the market. We're not obliged to pay a certain level of income or we're not obliged to have a certain allocation to a particular market, which means you know, we can be, be flexible and, and go to the areas where we have highest conviction, where we think that there's maximum opportunity. Okay. Now, you mentioned that in terms of areas you quite like for emerging market debt, looked interesting um i what i wondered was high yield bonds they obviously um offer a nice income um, and probably still quite high even if interest rates rise so um are they a good option at the moment as well we're a bit cautious on on high yields i mean i think emerging markets have seen the sell-off and they they have seen more value created whereas actually developed market risk and in high yield bonds it hasn't hasn't been quite as bad um we like we like certain bonds, but we wouldn't be overweight that as an asset class because because we think the this kind of quantitative tightening that's going on, which is the kind of opposite effect of QE, as as the Federal Reserve is already reducing the size of its balance sheet, and we'd expect the European Central Bank to kind of come to an end on its purchases by December, in our view, and this has had a huge impact on on developed market risk and developed market spreads. Now, okay, the ECB and the, the um, the Fed haven't bought high yield bonds, but it's had an effect where investment grade yields have been squeezed so tightly that people who, who want the yield and who, people who have been chasing yields in this QE environment have bought high yield bonds as well. Um, so, and they've moved up the kind of the, uh, the credit spectrum. Um, and we think as, as IG investment grade yields start to look more appealing, people move out of the asset class. So we'd much rather be in emerging market bonds versus high yield at this stage. Okay. Now, just just more generally, um, how do yields on bonds compare to other income assets at the moment? For example, equity income, um, which is something lots of people turn to, or perhaps even commercial property. Yeah. One thing we're careful when we're when we're pitching our funds and when we're you know trying to extol the benefits of them is that you know income is only one part of of the total return um in our in our portfolios and we don't buy yield or buy carry just for the sake of it we take it we take a view on it we're not targeting income so at the moment guilt yields you know they're, they're not for you much they offer say like slightly less than one and a half percent and the dividend yields in uk equities and and in commercial property for the most part is higher but you obviously you are taking the risk that your you know the your income may be higher, but your capital may be lower if we get a, a risk averse environment or if commercial property in the UK um, you know, decreases in value because of things like Amazon and you know, decline in, in the high street presence. So your your income will be less in a in a, say in UK government bonds, but you generally tend to be a, a better store of value and capital preservation preservation tends to be higher. Um, I mean, on on that note, would you say that bonds are higher or lower risk than equity income commercial property at the moment uh, i would say that they are lower risk i mean they're, they're they're designed to try not to be too exciting and you're not really um you know you expect you might lose money in real terms um if you know, if you adjust for inflation but you'd expect to be, be repaid your principal um whereas as an equity investor you're exposed to to a lot more risk you're exposed to yeah, to to growth in the economy, or you're exposed to you know, the, the the risks that that company that you invest in have. So you know, gilts tend to be a, a safe haven play. They tend to be what people turn to in, in times of high volatility. Um, 
but that's why they kind of offer you less yield. Okay. Now, turning to the fund Old Mutual Global Studio Bond, um, you've um, been running it for nearly two years, um, so not that long. Have you made any changes um, since taking it over? Yeah, so um, Mark Nash and I, um, we've been managing, like you say, managing the fund for nearly two years. Um, We have made changes. We've you know, we have come from more of a kind of institutional background, so we've, you know, we are very much process driven, um, and we've introduced a kind of um, a much more rigid risk framework in in which we make decisions, and so the volatility of the fund has has gone down a lot. Um, we've also increased the kind of spectrum of, of what it can invest in, and, and trying to trying to capture opportunities from, from you know from from across the fixed income spectrum. Um, I think we've also, you know, one thing we've tried to do is try and increase the the transparency of the fund as well um so i think uh investors trust you with their money and they expect you to take risk with it but they want to know what's going on in their fund and they don't don't want any surprises so you know we've been very clear each month you know when we write a monthly commentary we'll send a send an example of a of a model portfolio and show where the risks have been taken so that means that even if an investor doesn't like what we're doing at least they can kind of hedge against it and, and they know you know where the gains and losses are coming from um, have the changes you've implemented improved the fund's performance? Uh, yeah, I mean, they have. I think uh, our two-year two track record is is top quartile in our in our peer group now. And, the volat- and that wasn't the case before, that, was it? That was not, yeah. that was not the case. Yeah. And, and the volatility has, has gone down a lot. Mm. Uh, you know, it was it was a very high conviction funds, which is fine, but which meant it did mean that it, it typically had high volatility. We've introduced a you know a much tighter risk framework and risk adjusted returns versus our benchmark have, have have gone up quite a bit and now looking good versus peers. Okay, now one thing I noticed about the old mutual um, global Street bond, it seems to be doing well in its total returns, but it actually has a, a lower yield than many of its global bond sector peers. I mean, I looked yesterday, for example, the twelve month yield was one point sixty six percent. Why why is this? Yeah, and this comes back to a point um, I made earlier is that. You know the yields you get um, from a fund is is only one part of the, the total return, and having a low yield is you know is a conscious investment decision. It means that you know we we don't go chasing carry and yield in markets that we think are overvalued just to get that yield up. Now we'd much rather wait for um, the opportunities to present themselves like that they have done in emerging markets in the last couple of weeks, and so if we'd have chased that yield and, and got the yield up in a fund which made them aesthetically might have looked more appealing to someone you know looking at the total return level you'd have got you'd have got carried out um you know when when emerging market bonds sold out sold off so you know we we have a view that as central banks unwind their quantity of easing programs and as as growth and inflation picks up yields should return sorry the the extra spread you get on corporate bonds and emerging markets will return to more normal levels and then we'd look to buy it then you'll see an increase in the yield but um, at the moment, we we don't see don't many opportunities there, so we choose to keep the yield low and concentrate on uh, capital preservation and and, the to- and building total returns that way versus our peers. Okay, so just I suppose on a scale or whatever on a balance, um, you know, how important is total return versus a yield just generally um, for yourself? So yeah, total return is is pretty much everything mm. for us. I think you know if you if you're looking for consistent income there are there are plenty of you know we have one in within our team with a monthly income bond fund which you know p- pays a targets a certain amount of income each month 
whereas we are you know we are looking for total returns and carry order yield is part of the equation of course it makes up and it can make up a sizable part of that return but we won't um just boost that um, when we think that you know, the yield enhancing products um, just don't offer that much value and you aren't compensated for the risk. And it comes back to the point you made earlier about, you know, what other risks do do bond market investors have? And, you know, credit credit spread is, is a huge part of their risk, um, as is, you know, the spread you should be compensated for by going down the credit spectrum and investing or investing in emerging market bonds. And if we judge that that spread is too tight and too narrow, then you will see the yield in our fund come down and we'll wait for opportunities to present themselves and, and for them to look better value than a lot of them do today. Okay, thank you, Nick. A really helpful explanation of the workings of the bond market and how you run your funds. If you do things on the cheap, you might not get the best outcome. And it seems that this is certainly the case with funds. A recent study of UK oil company sector funds has found that the top performing ones aren't necessarily the cheapest. Emma, you've been looking at this. How did the study come to this finding? Well, Leonora, Chelsea Financial Services looked at the performance of 238 funds in the Investment Association UK oil company sector. And they looked at that performance over five years. And they found that four out of the top 10 performers had an ongoing charge of more than 1%, which is actually you know, quite a high level of fees for a fund. So it's this point that you're saying that actually um, the top performing funds are not necessarily the cheapest ones. OK, so which was the top performing UK oil company sector fund over five years? It was Old Mutual UK Dynamic Equity, which returned 122.3% over five years. And that's after charges. Um, and that fund has an ongoing charge of 1.07%. Okay, so which other funds did well? Um, th- the fund to come second was CFP SDL UK Buffetology, and it made um, similar levels, 121.7% after fees. It has an ongoing charge of, of 1.28%. And um, another old mutual fund made the top 10. Old mutual equity came fourth, and it made a return of 114.2% after fees over five years. And it has an ongoing charge of 1.1%. Okay, so um, let's say at the other end of the scale, um, how did the cheapest funds do? Well, perhaps not surprisingly, the cheapest funds were all trackers. Um, iShares UK Equity Index, HSBC FTSE All Share Index and Fidelity Index UK. They all had the, sim- or the same um, ongoing charge figure of 0.06%, and they also roughly made the same return over five years, 36%. Um, but they were, as we were talking about earlier, they were massively outperformed by those top four funds, which, even with their higher charges, outperformed the cheapest funds by between 155 and 238%. So quite a big return there. Yeah, I mean, Mm. it's quite a big outperformance. So is it the case then, the more you pay, the better the performance? Um, Unfortunately, no, it's it's not that simple. Because of all, you know, Chelsea found that um, there were lots of funds with very good performance that had higher fees. It also found that there were more than half of the funds in the bottom quartile of performance that had higher fees of 1% or more. Okay, so what would be an example of a poorly performing fund of a high charge? Um, One example was TC Dalmore Growth and Income, and uh, it has an ongoing charge of almost 3%, um, which was actually one of the highest, it was the highest ongoing charge of the fund surveyed. 
But even compared to the passives, which made 36% over the five years, um, this fund made 22% um, over five years after fees. And in terms of performance of the 238 funds that were looked at, um, it ranked 223 out of you know 238. Okay, I suppose this begs the question though, um, so what do you do? Do you buy or do you avoid funds of higher charges? I mean, it's definitely, you know, it's the key thing to think about. Um, the analyst I spoke to said that it's it's very important to actually monitor um, an active manager's performance carefully. Um, and actually, you need to think about um, performance in relation to fees. So it's how much the, the fund actually delivers after the fees rather than just, you know, a high or low ongoing charge that they have. So yes, make sure you look at that and also make sure that you monitor the performance. Um, obviously, short-term performance or underperformance can kind of affect every manager. But if a fund is being consistently underperforming for three years, then that could be a sign that you, know, you, really, need to, you really need to think twice. Okay, thank you, Emma. Some really helpful tips on how to assess fund charges. That's all we've got time for today, but you can read Emma's full report on fund charges and more on the prospects of fixed income in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.